Look, I have a podcast. I've been exposing these people, okay? This is the Revolution in Ideology podcast. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. And we have a special guest today, Gabe. I'll have Gabe introduce himself. Hey, everyone. My name's Gabe. I'm a former student of Nick and Jared's at uh, UCCS and uh, currently doing some stonemasonry and uh, looking forward to discussing this film. Yeah, so we are continuing our sort of experiment on... I guess into pop culture and can we analyzing. stop and just say not just any student, probably one of our best. Can we just say that? Yeah, I guess we could say that. All right. Now he just blew up his ego for the whole rest of this episode. But I yeah. want I want his ego in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we're continuing our sort of experiment into pop culture. We did an episode on the Netflix film The Platform and analysis of that. So check that out if you haven't already. And this time we are analyzing. Um, I think it's a universal film, The Hunt. So Jared's going to start by giving us a brief synopsis of the film. Okay, so so the director on this film, The Hunt, which was in theory supposed to be released in uh, 2019, but was released in 2020, um is uh, Craig Zobel. And uh, we'll talk about why there was a potential like delay in the release perhaps a little bit later. But we're going to go through a brief synopsis of the film before we break down like analysis. And we're going to go through it relatively quickly. And um, I don't know that it needs mention, but there are, I'm going to go through the whole film right now. This is a spoiler alert. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go through the whole film. If you haven't watched it yet, sorry, I'm giving it all away. So we open in this film um, with like a series of text messages uh, and I'm not going to go through those text messages yet, but they do reveal some of kind of like the major plot points. And then we get on to an airplane and on the airplane, uh, we are, op we open up with like kind of more questions. If you haven't like had a synopsis of this before, like I never, I didn't look up anything on this film before I decided to watch it. You're left with a lot of questions. Like, why are these people on this luxurious plane? Why are they worried about that a passenger happened to wake up and why do they end up killing him? Um, anyway, that's what happens on the plane. But once, um, we're on the ground, we see individuals waking up in the woods and instantly your mind goes to like a battle royale, like the, the, the Japanese film or perhaps a Hunger Games kind of scenario where these people wake up, they have gags in their mouths. There is a crate in the middle of them and they have to access what's in the crate, which at first is like this cute pig dressed up like, like, I don't know, like a Girl Scout it looked like to me. Yeah, I can tell what yeah, it was. Yeah, it, it, it was great. And the pig comes running out. But then there's like a little arsenal inside and yeah, everybody grabs their weapons and instantly people start dying. And the one thing I picked out of that scene that was important is before there was any death at the beginning. Um, people uh, actually work together. Like their immediate goal was going to be to work together. They find keys to unlock each other's gags, those types of things. And we're going to come back to that when we dig into analysis. Um, but it is only upon the first death that people stop working together. Anyway, uh, eventually enough people die and uh, a couple of people are able to escape. Uh, three survivors end up finding a convenience store where they find out they are in quote-unquote Arkansas, Manorgate, Arkansas. Uh, one of the survivors ends up calling 911, um, and they're trying to get help because of the scenario that they find themselves in. Um, there's a couple of shop owners there, some nice elderly people, and they're basically in on the whole scam, this this hunt that these people are now trying to escape from. Uh, again, there's some really juicy quotes in there um, that I think Nick is going to get to when we break into analysis. But moving forward, uh, we come back to one of our original uh, survivors that we saw at the beginning. Um, uh, it turns out her name is Crystal, so I'll just call her Crystal. I actually have Liberty Bell here uh, because of her character on another show she's in called Glow. But anyway... We come back and uh, she ends up back at this convenience store after the three survivors have been essentially executed by the couple. She ends up killing the old couple uh, and then uh, goes on the run. She meets a, a another individual uh, named Gary and they escape by basically hopping on a train. It turns out Gary's like some far right-wing conspiracy theorist uh, from a podcast. I did think it was interesting that on IMDb, his official in the credits, his official title is Shut the Fuck Up, Gary. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much to analyze here, but I want to get through this synopsis. Um, as we, uh, as they go forward, uh, the train ends up being stopped by some police and they end up at what looks like more or less is like, you forgot to mention they jump on a train. 
Yeah, I thought I, th- I thought I, j- I mentioned that they jump on the damn train. No. All right. Well, they much they jump on the train and they run into some um, what what appear to be um, escaping refugees, escaping from some war torn situation, probably perpetrated by the West in the Middle East. <laughs> odds are high. <laughs> yeah, odds are high. <laughs> Regardless, they end up in what looks like a UN refugee camp. My original notes were like it looks like something you might find in 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 Eastern uh, uh, Europe, and it turned out absolutely. Um, they end up in what we find out is Croatia. Uh, they meet up with one of the other survivors, a dude named Don, um, and they end up picked up by a United States representative of some sort. I don't know if he has a position or not, but at first our friend Don thinks they're saved, but uh, our, our lead character, Crystal, realizes that uh, this guy is kind of shady. And essentially, she ends up kicking his ass uh, on the car ride. They open up the trunk. They find a dead body in the back. It's actually Gary's. And then she gives us an interesting story that, I, again, I think Nick will probably talk about a little bit. She gives us an interesting twist on the tortoise and the hare story, which I think is going to uh, play a role in the film moving forward. And then we find ourselves with the actual hunters. They're in a hide. Uh, if you're a hunter, you know what a hide is. And uh, they're essentially the people that are hunting all of these individuals that we have come across so far. And they have this very almost comical, satirical conversation, which, again, we'll get further into the analysis of here in a second. Um, but eventually, uh, our hero, Crystal, finds her way to the hide and uh, manages to murder all of them. Unfortunately, the saddest part of that scene for me is that our pig that was dressed up, Orwell, happens to die. Uh, his name is Orwell. You probably already know where the film, and we are going to go with that. Anyway, there's also a question of whether or not one of the survivors, Don, was a double agent or not. Doesn't matter. Crystal doesn't take any chances, and she caps his ass, too. Um, we then get a little bit of a backstory about who these hunters are and who the main organizer is. It happens to be a powerful woman named Athena. Uh, I think that name's important. Of course, the ancient Greek goddess of war and wisdom. Um, I think there's a lot there. It turns out that, uh, uh, that enough conspiracies had come about because of the text messages we see at the beginning of the film that she decides to actually put into play a hunt. You see, there were conspiracy theories that they were already doing this. It turns out they weren't, but she decides to make it a reality once um, she loses her powerful position. We then get to fast forward about eight, uh, a couple of months in the future, and we get to the process of where they're selecting the various contestants. I really wish we had got to see why they chose each of the contestants. We didn't. We only got a couple of the highlights. Uh, of course, we find one was a trophy hunter, a big game hunter, so that's why he was selected to be hunted himself. We also see um, that, of course, the far right wing Gary um, was chosen just because he's an asshole and probably blew the lid off the conspiracy. Yeah, right. He has the yeah. podcast where he talks about this conspiracy theory, Manorgate, so that's why they chose him. Right. And then we get a, a, a African-American or a black Texas sheriff, which is clearly meant to model the, the very famous one from a few years back. I don't know if Nick ever bothered to look up his name, but he was super famous for being um, a far-right supporter during the Trump campaign in 2016. I think that was a clear satire of him. Anyway, that's funny because I didn't even pick up on that. You're yeah, absolutely right there. Yeah. 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 I forget his name. We'll have I'll look him up when we get to the analysis. Anyway, Ultimately, we find out that uh, Crystal was selected uh, because she was confused with another Crystal who uh, tweeted something under the name Justice for Y'all, basically calling out Athena for killing innocent people. It ends up being a giant mistake, but it doesn't matter. Um, They end up running into each other in in, in a home that Athena rented in Croatia. They have a massive like just bloody fight in the kitchen leading to, as you might imagine, our, our heroine crystal coming out victorious. Um, and, uh, and from there, uh, we are, we get a reference back to our tortoise and the hare story where she ends up eating a grilled cheese sandwich. And I think that kind of settles the synopsis for now. So we can hurry up and get into now analysis. Um, so yeah, Nick pick up on the analysis. So I, on the platform, we intentionally did not read any like reviews or analysis by anyone else. For this one, I went down the internet rabbit hole. And Jared's right. It was supposed to be released in 2019, but after the El Paso shooting, as you might imagine, this film's incredibly violent and there's gun violence throughout and so on. Universal decided to, I'm going to go with Universal. I don't remember if it's actually Universal, but it doesn't, it's irrelevant. Universal decided to delay the release. And so it got, like Jared said, released in 2020. But some details of the film, essentially the script got leaked online during this period. 
And so people like lost their proverbial minds to the point of even Donald Trump tweeted about this film. So I'll just read his tweet because it's funny and short because it's a tweet. He says, liberal Hollywood is racist at the highest level and with great anger and hate. They like to call themselves elite, but they are not elite. In fact, it is often the people that they strongly oppose that are actually the elite. The movie coming out, uh, the movie coming out is made in order to inflame and cause chaos. They create their own violence and then try to blame others. They are the true racists and are very bad for our country, which whatever, you know He's how Donald such Trump a clown. tweets. But I found commentary from both sides actually that were pissed off about this movie from the right and the left because it stereotypes and satirizes both of them, which I think is interesting. And since the full movie hadn't been released, there were just bits and snip, uh, snippets from the script like, I read this one right-wing blog post, which was all about how it was so stereotypical of the right and, like, how ridiculous. And in my mind, I'm like, are they ignoring the fact that it also is satirical and critiquing the left? And then the left did the exact same thing. Like, they're so, like, critiquing social justice warriors and, like, how dare they, but ignoring the entire fact that they're also critiquing the right. So, I don't know. I just thought it was funny. Basically, no one can decide where the film is actually coming from because it critiques both, which I think we'll talk about as we... Uh, continue but do you guys have any thoughts on that before we move on gabe what do you think um yeah no i i, I agree with that overall analysis I, I think it's interesting that trump tweeted about it um i'm sure that was really good for uh for sales even though it, <laughs> i guess it wasn't even allowed to be released in theaters uh because so it theater. was re- it was released right before the covid19 like crisis happened i think it only spent a week or two in the movies like in the actual theaters and then when all the theaters shut down it just went straight online yeah, you have to rent it for like twenty bucks on Amazon or YouTube or whatever to watch it. So. Yeah, gotcha. So let's talk a little bit about the satire of both the right and the left. I want to go through these scenes, just a couple of examples where this comes through, and like this is probably my. I guess let's do the Gary thing first. So when Crystal and Gary are they're trying to escape, they jump on this moving train, and in the train car that they jump into is a group of refugees, like Jared said. They then get stopped by the military, which we learn later is the Croatian military. And I guess it could be some other forces, but whatever. It's irrelevant. They, Gary, we find out is this like raging xenophobe, I guess at this point. And he goes on this whole like diatribe about, first off, he doesn't think that they're real. He calls them crisis actors and he says, (laughs) there's no real, like they're not really refugees. These are just crisis actors. This is a whole part of like the thing. And. Like, come on, it seems completely unbelievable that the one car that happened to have an open door that we jumped into had refugees and et cetera. So this is where we see this critique of the right. This is also one of the issues that the blog post I read, like they had issues with this and they were like, no person on the right would say this in that moment. Like they portray us all as like completely heartless, like assholes. Like we would understand that these people need help and they have a baby and like in the moment we would help them and like all this stuff. Which I just thought was interesting that they picked that one scene to like be offended by, but whatever. But this is where we see kind of a satire. He also says, let's see if I can find the quote real fast because I laughed at this. Um, well, and keep in mind that, that, that it turns out now that we're done with synopsis, we can go a little bit deeper in analysis that, that all of these people were selected because they are quote unquote deplorables, which was clearly a riff on, yeah. on, on some of Hillary Clinton's discussion, uh, or well, monikers she would use during her campaign, these, this basket full of deplorables or whatever, these people would all be considered somewhere on the right, whether it is like militant right, like Gary, or the non-caring ignorant right, like the dude from Orlando who just wants to, whatever, I, I, he's just a troll, so to speak, yeah. probably just an ignorant troll. By the way, he's credited as Vanilla Nice. That's Vanilla Nice, the is that, that's his yeah. name? Okay, <laughs> I never even got his name in the movie. There's also a guy, apparently, as I'm scrolling through the IMBD, one of the dude's name is Staten Island. That's his name. Because that's where he's from, yeah. Yeah, and he's got seven guns. That's one of my favorite favorite lines, too, is yeah. when she's asking, like, why do you have seven guns? And he's like, it's my First Amendment right. And she's all like, well, these people hunting you, is are they not also, or excuse me, my, my Second Amendment right? Are, is the, are they also not just exercising their Second Amendment right as well? And yeah, just, I wrote yeah, that down too. I, yeah, I love that. Gary in this scene gives us like probably the exposition. 
Yeah, I think it's the first exposition that we get, really. His quote is, every year the liberal elites, you know, these globalist cucks who run the deep state, kidnap a bunch of normal folks like us and hunt us for fucking sport in like this mansion in Vermont or something. And then his line that I think was hilarious is like, look, I have a podcast. I've been exposing these people, which is just such a dig at like both the right and the left and the podcasts. And And us. And yeah, the conspiracy theories and like the whole gamut of just online just running your damn mouth, which we're doing right yeah, now. Yeah, I was so offended when that happened. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. So that's the scene. Yeah, go ahead, Dave. I wrote that, I wrote, I wrote that quote down, too, because, uh, I mean, when he said globalist cucks, it's like, okay, this is uh, obviously getting at something. And uh, it's yeah. funny, too, because this guy, uh, Gary, he's, he's actually from American History X, too. He plays, like, this yep. really uh, bad racist guy on there. Um, and uh, I don't know. He talks about the mansion in Vermont. That's, like, an ongoing reference in the movie. I mean, do you think that's, like, an allusion to Bernie Sanders or something? Because there's been controversy a controversy about him owning a, a lake house recently or something, mm-hmm. like, more than one home. I, I don't know. I thought maybe that was commentary on Bernie or something. I do like that. Yeah. I don't know the timing of this movie. I guess they're writing it in, like, 2016 or something. So, yeah, for sure. I yeah, like he's that. talking well, and he talks about the deep state as well. Yeah, and, yeah globalist cocks. The first, yeah. I think, clue that we get that they're right wing is in the very beginning when they open the crate and they start getting picked off. This woman falls in this pit that's full of spikes, and she's sitting there impaled. And someone runs over to try to help her with a gun, and she's also been blown up by a grenade at this point, so she's half a torso. And she's like, just shoot me. And he says, no, I'm not going to shoot you. And she says, give me the gun, snowflake. And right immediately, I was like, no one, like, you would have to be on the right to use that term in this context. So clearly, we know where we're going, like, immediately. Um, Then the other scene that I think is my favorite scene of the film, this is when we get really the liberal critique, is in the bunker. And so they show all of these liberals in the bunker with their weapons, like, waiting for the people to come back. Like, this is at nighttime now, so they can start picking them off. And... The scene is just fucking hilarious. Um, so let's let's set this up real quick since my synopsis was super brief. Essentially now, what we find out as the film kind of drags on is that it is like ultra wealthy, rich liberals that have set up this hunt. So they are like – we don't want to say far left by any sh- – anyone that's listening to this podcast know we don't define liberalism as, as really left that much at all. But regardless um, – these what what the United States would consider like left like these very wealthy elite neoliberals right and both neoliberal economically and then liberal politically have set up this hunt and essentially what they're doing is trying to again hunt down these uh, right far right agitators or in some cases they're not even like agitators they're just like regular everyday deplorables as Hillary Clinton called them but they are like they are the elite left so it's kind of funny that they are like super wealthy. Um, and willing to basically set up this hunt to get these these people that are on the right, but the way they go about it shows some of this, and I want to focus on this in a minute, but I'll let Nick do his analysis, this kind of like ethical flexibility kind of thing, and I think that's one of the most important parts. But Nick, what were you going to no, say? No, I think that's super important. Well, let's do the scene first, and yeah. then... Oh, wow. Ava DuVernay just liked one of my posts. You're friends with Ava, too? No, but maybe. We met at a Time 100 dinner. This is the photo that she liked when I was in Haiti. <laughs> Wait a second. Wait. You were in Haiti? Remind us, what were you doing there again? You were curing AIDS, AIDS. in a favela, isn't that? Don't joke about AIDS. No, no, no. I'm not joking. AIDS is very, very serious. And thank God, Martin is single-handedly taking it on. Okay. First of all, there are no favelas in Haiti. That's Brazil. Well, I just I, I heard that you got a girl pregnant down there. Oh. I fell in love. Hope she was pro-choice. Don't joke about choice, man. Please. What matters is that Haiti is in the midst of a decades-long humanitarian crisis. And it needs all the help it can get. Thank you. Does it need Martin Seaman? Okay. Oh, Richard. Guys, we're all on the same team. Did you say guys? I'm sorry. I gendered it. I think it's just a really funny commentary on, like, the liberal elite and their... One of the the things I read was, like, it's attacking social justice warriors, which I guess is probably accurate right and they were all they were super you know into breaking down like 
like little bits and pieces of trivialities in their discussion of what they were like, like favelas. They were talking about favelas in Haiti. And then one guy's like, he corrected them. Like they're not favelas in Haiti, favelas in, are in Brazil. And they get kind of bogged down in like, again, like these little intricacies that in the grand scheme of things don't matter. And I think there's a clear critique there of, of liberalism in and of itself. And rather than getting anything actually accomplished, we get, again, we find ourselves getting bogged down in, in, I don't even know. I think trivialities is the best word. What do you think, Gabe? I know you've got some critiques on liberalism. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's funny because they kind of just enumerate all these different, you know, pseudo progressive values that are kind of devoid, you know, of, uh, of any sort of like class consciousness or anything. Like someone says you guys and then this other person jumps on that person for using gendered language. And then yeah, from there they right, jump right, right, pro, yeah, they, they jump to pro choice in, uh, and then, you know, uh, uh, white saviorism and, and like the third world. And they're, they're just critiquing all these pseudo progressive values that like the liberal, you know, petty bourgeois kind of hold while at the same time they're hunting like poor people, you know? And so mm-hmm. yes. it just, it just shows how like ruthlessly, you know, uh, these, these fake progressives can, can kind of, I don't know, grandstand on their little icons and pretend to espouse like these, these values while at the same time, like, not really giving a shit about the poor and actually like killing them in pretty ruthless ways, which is, you know, explicated visually here, like in a really gory manner. So but I don't know. The contrast is, becomes more and more obvious, like as the film progresses. But yeah, I think that's super key. What Jared was alluding to earlier and you just nailed is one of the themes of the film and one of the huge critiques of the liberals in the film is the fact that like, right, this guy can be in Haiti working on AIDS relief and all these things. And they, Right. Like you said, they gendered this thing and the, all of this stuff, the climate change comment that's in the gas station. But in the film, they're literally hunting like people on the right. This term that Jared uses all the time, right? Moral flexibility. On the one hand, I will go to Haiti and I will do age relief. But on the other hand, I'm literally waiting for these people to show up so I can shoot them. Like that's, yeah, everywhere throughout the film, which I think is great. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I guess we can go ahead, Dave. Gabe. I, I was just going to say, I had a, uh, I had a professor at CSU Pueblo who was, uh, he was like a terrorism expert and like this, he was like a right wing, like political science, uh, professor and, and he would defend to the ends of the earth, like the U.S., you know, State Department and, and the Defense Department and all these, you know, different intelligence agencies. But he would get pissed off at the students if they said you guys instead of you all. So he had <laughs> the same, pseudo progressive values that he then tried to like you know throw on his students while we were like critiquing imperialism and it's just i don't know it it, it reminded me of him just so much that conversation so i guess i mean this presents like the best opportunity to maybe have this conversation why are these uh liberal hunters again i think there's a lot to unpack there with just the idea of a liberal hunter why are they portrayed this way what is the director or the writer in this case looking for by presenting this and i use the term ethical flexibility and moral bankruptcy they're a little bit different but regardless why are they presenting these liberals as as basically ethically flexible what are they after what is like again the the basic dig here at and again, I hate even using the term left because it, the, the left in the United States is the laughing stock of the left everywhere else in the fucking world. But regardless, the the American left, what are they digging at here by attacking the American left this way? Before I want to answer that question, I do want to provide just another analysis of that I didn't really think of until before now. Before now. The critique of liberals in the film is a critique of, like you, like we just said, their moral flexibility, where on the one hand, they can believe in all of these things, and on the other hand, they are killing people. That same critique does not exist for the right in the film. None of their actions actually require them to violate their quote-unquote morals in the film, right? They're defending themselves. They have the guns. They Every action that they have actually is in line with what they would believe. Which so, I think uh, but, is interesting. But that's the, I think part of the point as well, at least coming from my, my own, and this is my own opinion on this. I mean, that's one of the problems with the, the liberal in, liberals in the United States is of course their ethical flexibility. Uh, the right doesn't necessarily get critiqued as much for that, but that's because, and that's where the other term comes in. I would, I would equate them more with just moral bankruptcy in, in many of these cases. And, and that's, you know, like I said, I'd, I'd take a stand on that one. That's where we're seeing like the difference there. It's just, they don't have there's that's fine they stand for quote unquote something it's being completely immoral 
um, in this case. And we get that with Gary's example with the refugees in, in the train and the fact that he's willing to, at one point, uh, again, here's a spoiler, put a grenade in one of their pants, thus blowing them up. Um, Although that dude wasn't a refugee, that guy was one of the well, elite. But he, but Gary didn't know that. No, he did. Gary, By that point, they did. Oh, yeah. that's right. He did know that because he did come. He outed himself when he yeah. started speaking just like regular English to him. Yeah. Like, look, dude. Well, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah, I guess you got. But it, anyway, it just shows like yeah. how how the right is so you know completely just open about their you know xenophobia, racism, whatever you want to you know ascribe to them. While the le- like the quote unquote left, the liberal you know pseudo progressive left like tries to guise their hatred of the poor and, and the third world and, you know, uh, uh, progressive like economic systems uh, under a different banner of like social, uh, you know, progressivism. And it's almost even more innervating to to see that than like to to see like the right just just be kind of honest about their about their credentials, you know, moral or otherwise. Whereas, you know, the liberal groups in this country like are just so back and forth. Like they're on the fence. Of, they're, they're not on the fence about it, but they're, uh, you know, they're, they're just like faking it till they make it almost. Or yeah. it's kind of hard to explain, but it's, it's like a sleight of hand almost. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, often, you know, like who your enemy is with the right, but with like the liberals in this country, like it's hard to tell, like you have to deconstruct that shit and it's, it can be a process. So like, it's one of those. Yeah. Like, but, but which one, which one do you think is more, God, I hate to use this term because now I sound like like one of those those groups from the from the film problematic. Which one do you think is more problematic? Like, do you think like that kind of blatant out there sort of moral bankruptcy, or or that more kind of like I don't know subversive, uh, clandestine again kind of like lack of class consciousness? Which ethical flexibility to use that term again for like the third or fourth time at this point? I often, even in a classroom when I'm teaching like 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 U.S. history, for example, and we're in like the era of like civil rights, I ask I ask students questions like which is worse, like the outright blatant racism of the American South or the more low key in the closet subversive racism of the West and the North? Right? I mean, we see again problems in both cases. If we now juxtapose that same kind of comparison to like the modern era, what's worse? Is it like the just the blatant we don't give a give it give a fuck like far right movement or is it the fake i don't even know what what do we call this this facade of like pc culture and awareness of the the liberals which one do you think is like more problematic gabe yeah so i don't know i think i think like we can morally condemn the right more more directly than, you know, the, the pseudo progressive liberals, but what should be considered too are the, like, the effects that, you know, these, these world positions have on the development of, you know, class consciousness or, or the lack thereof in this country and elsewhere. Because, I mean, you can have like some basically economically speaking far right, like austerity pushing, privatization loving, you know, neoliberal ascending to office, uh, like Justin Trudeau, who, you know, uh, marches in a gay pride parade and then sells, sells $600 billion worth of armaments to a regime that beheads gay people. Um, and that can prevent people from like attaining, you know, a further understanding of, you know, the military organ, uh, of the body of our society or the effects it has or, you know, class relations. Um, whereas on the far right, I mean, Trump is like the shining example of this because on the far right, you have just like the explicit like dismissal or, or even uh, acceptance of of motives for you know war uh, for economic problems et cetera. Like he straight up is saying like we want their oil. You know like at least George Bush wasn't so you know dumb to, <laughs> to, to, to not say that. But um, I think honestly the effects of to come back to the original point the effects of this you know pseudo progressive narrative and these 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 fake you know accepted I, I don't know uh, these these fake like. Uh, positions where you know they're socially progressive but economically regressive i think that's honestly more harmful in the long run because people who are like left-leaning or like flirting with the left or on the fence about it are not going to take that step needed to attain class consciousness in light of you know all of these fake progressive you know uh, uh positions that are espoused by like liberals whereas the right you don't have that problem they put band-aids on broken bones yeah right? Is that that and, and it gives us the illusion that things are moving forward, right? Again, it's very illusory that yes, oh well, in this case, to give you like this one example, well, yes, now people in the LGBTQ plus community can get married. Oh, we're making so much progress. When in reality, what you're saying is 
No, the system in itself is still in play and it is still uh, – it, 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 even if it's more inclusive of one group of people, it's exclusive of another group of people. And in this case, we've also lost our understanding of where we stand um, regarding class. Like inclusivity is just more people being included into um, the subversive uh, attack against class consciousness. Yeah, exactly. It's like having a, you know, a, a black a black police officer, like that, you know, famous feminist slogan, my favorite position is CEO. And it's like that's that's not that's not what we need, you know? Like that's not right. uh, it's not progressive. <laughs> okay. All right. So, on that note, throughout the film when I kind of got a gist of what was going on, I really really hoped it was going to be a critique from the radical left that the right and liberals are completely ridiculous that's not what it ended up being but i still like to dream that it is that yeah, because I that's s- what i wanted it to be i was hoping again those of you that have listened to this podcast at least a couple of our episodes on various topics from sociology to ideology to history to whatever you've come to realize that we don't stand with either of those groups so we were hoping that it would be something from the much more radical left um and it it, it never really gets flushed out it's just i mean you could think of it like that i know that it's not because i listened to an interview with the uh one of the writers and he basically said we took the opportunity to critique ourselves and the other liberal elite that we experience in Hollywood on a daily basis. That's what the film, that's what the liberals are that they are critiquing. But he admitted that we are those people. Like, so it clearly isn't coming from the radical left. It's coming more from the central liberal, like, perspective, which is fine. Like, that's one of my critiques because I want it to be the other thing, but whatever. I don't, I can't fault it. It will never it. be the other no, thing. No, exactly. States. It yeah. will never be the other <laughs> the thing. The closest here. you're going to get to that is Boots Riley. And hopefully he makes No, exactly. Opinion. Yeah, totally. Agreed. I would, I would like to hear his opinion on this. Yeah, I wonder if, I wonder if he's seen it. Um, but yeah. I, no, I, I had high hopes for the movie too. Like, especially after the beginning scene, you know, I mean, it really set out like an explicit class warfare. I mean, the, the guy yeah. said on the plane, you know, enough sentiment, uh, enough sentimentality, comrade, war is war. And then pulls a fucking eyeball off of a high heel, uh, which is, you know, like it, it's representing like, you know, the bourgeoisie are attacking this, this proletarian who then defends himself on the plane. This is the guy who wakes up. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then when he tries to defend himself at all, the bourgeoisie come in and just ruthlessly like in the quarrel, you know, by stabbing him, and the fucking eyeball with a high heel boot and then the eyeball like comes out of his head. And it's like the Paris commune or something. Like whenever anyone tries to stand up for themselves, it is just ruthlessly demolished either by cannon fodder or in this case, a high heel. Yeah, that's great. And the fact that it's a high heel is even more just symbolic. Um, which I thought was funny. The blue soled shoes that she uses to take his eyeball out and et cetera. And then Crystal ends up wearing at the end are Louis Vuitton, which are like ridiculously expensive. I don't know why I knew that, and I was mad at myself for knowing it, but yeah. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. You are bourgeois. They have red and blue souls. I don't know why yeah, I knew that. Bad, Anyways. Bad and bougie. Interestingly, that quote, no, sin- no sentimentality, is a quote from Animal Farm. So I want to go down this path of the references to Animal Farm in the film. You're right on the plane. Um, Athena, I, th- I can't remember. I think it's right after she takes the guy's eye out with her eye heel, says, yeah, like you said, no sentimentality, comrade, war is war. So I looked this up, and it's from Animal Farm, and it's Snowball the pig who says, no sentimentality, comrade, cried Snowball, from whose wounds the blood still was still dripping. War is war. The only good human being is a dead one. This is when they're revolting against the humans uh, on Animal Farm, or the farmer, I guess. Uh, so what do you guys think? There's so many references to Animal Farm, which I admittedly, like embarrassingly, didn't pick up until the end when they started talking about Animal Farm. Then when I looked back, I realized that they were all named after characters from Animal Farm. Snowball and Boxer and uh, Mr. Wimper and etc. When they're in the gas station and they're on the radios, the liberal elites are talking about which ones of them they've killed, and they've assigned them all names of characters from Animal Farm, which I, like I said, didn't pick up until the end of the film. Uh, so what do you guys think about this? Well, what's your opinion of Animal Farm? I mean, this we could go down this rabbit hole, and yes. that, that'll take us a whole different different direction and maybe make this podcast longer than it needs to be. But it, what, what? in fact, I am curious for both of you, since, it, since it, it, everybody, I'm assuming, has read this book. What is your opinion of Animal Farm, Gabe? Like, what is the point? What is George Orwell getting at in Animal Farm? Like, what, what's, 
What's the thesis? So I'm going to have to defer that question over to Nick or back to yourself because I embarrassingly have never read Animal Farm, actually. I know it's Come not on, really anti-Soviet bullshit. I've read How to Shoot an Elephant. I think that's more well-written than 84 anyway. Yeah. But yeah, I haven't read Animal Farm. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to take it back to yeah. the question. So it's a critique of author- it's a critique of Stalinism. That's exactly what it is, of authoritarian socialism. I mean, I guess, yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Uh, Orwell himself has admitted that. However, in the U.S., it's so warped because it's become this like incredible story that's a critique of all communism that the nuance of the fact that it's just specifically critiquing like dictatorial socialism is completely lost on the U.S. audience. Yeah, George Orwell himself, um, depending on, I guess, on, on who you ask, including himself, dabbled somewhere between like far left socialism or straight up anarchism based on his like life in Spain with the syndicalists and so on and so forth. So, so George Orwell is not some, again, like super right wing Ayn Rand kind of like author that, that Amer- many Americans have tried to make him. He's definitely not that, but yes, Animal Farm is clearly a critique of Stalinism. That, that is, that is 100% true. Yeah, and the fact that it's got so perverted in the U.S. that it's become this, like, right-wing book that they cling to somehow because it critiques dictatorship so much is just absurd because he's writing it from the anarchist or, like, the democratic socialist perspective. Right. Which is ridiculous. But anyway, what, what, Nick, what do you think? What's, what is the, what is the thesis of that besides, uh, whatever, uh, Soviet Union got run amok? What, so, what's Orwell looking I tried for? to figure out how to apply this to the film because I hoped so much that the writers had something deeper here by making use of this story. But I don't think that's the case. Honestly, I think they just grabbed at something and applied it to the film. And I don't think there's any deeper analysis there, even though I really hoped that there was. I think that they just latched on to something that was somehow related to like the liberal elite and socialism and communism and something and just applied it. I don't think so there's anything okay, deeper you're there. You're doubting the intellectual yeah. depth of the writer and the director. And maybe I mean, I don't want to the say actors. they're not intellectual. I just think in this case, I there was not them as individual humans, yeah. I meant, but what they were aiming for. They just found yeah. something that I really tried. I went back and skimmed through Animal Farm and read some of the like analyses and stuff and tried to figure out why snowball as an example it's called snowball and like all these things but it, it's just not there i tried but i don't think it is i think they just were latching at something that was cute and that they could apply to the film yeah i did have in my notes some of the analysis of the fact that they named the pig this little pig that runs out from the crate this piglet they name it orwell and then in the end in the bunker crystal uses that as like a diversion and she drops orwell down this chute and they end up killing it so I thought it was interesting that like this cute pig that they all liked that they named Orwell that in my opinion maybe could symbolize a kind of communism or socialism, they end up killing themselves. So maybe there is something there of how these liberal elite end up killing what they think that they kind of want somehow or something. It, I don't know. It's kind of a stretch and I don't think it's, that was their intent. Well, but... digging further into that, then, then, then if you think that's the case, then maybe they do in their own minds, if, if that's what they want or think they want, or maybe subconsciously want. Or maybe the point is they, that they don't actually want it. Are they in their own minds, the intelligentsia or the revolutionary vanguard? Is that what they think they, or are we just going way too deep? Do I think, think we're think going way too deep. The writers and directors no. are not aware of any of these concepts. Probably not. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> They might be aware of like the Revolutionary Vanguard and Lenin and whatever, but okay. I don't think there's enough of it in the film that they were actually trying to like weave that in. I wish that there was, but I tried and just couldn't make it happen. Yeah, okay. yeah one thing I wrote down is that it's like really lowbrow social commentary. Yeah, 100%. Um, it's, I, I, it, I kept like digging for, for historical references or like philosophical concepts and just it wasn't wasn't there man wasn't there even in the story i mean i don't know like maybe you guys saw something in this for example that i didn't uh but like the story of the uh, hare and the tortoise racing yeah i didn't really understand what she was getting at with that like no no i sat on that for a really long time um i mean i previewed it obviously when i was doing the synopsis and uh for those of you that have for some reason not seen the film and don't mind it being spoiled uh basically our heroine at one point after she seizes the car from the u.s like representative kills him and finds the body of gary in the trunk uh provides a story to her traveling uh, partner a dude named don 
And it is basically just a story she was told as a little girl growing up in Mississippi. It's the tortoise and the hare story, like, to a T until the end. And the twist at the end is that the hare, in this case, she calls him a jackrabbit, but the hare ends up back at the tortoise's house at the end of uh, the day where he's having, like, a nice celebration dinner with his family, and he murders uh, the family and then eats their dinner. Like, that's the twist to the tortoise and the hare story. Um, and then at the end, when she finally murders Athena, she eats her dinner as well. But I, I guess... I'm kind of with Gabe on this. I don't understand what the point of that was. Um, maybe I'm too like dense myself, but like, yeah. And she says like the moral of the story is the jackrabbit always wins. And then Don, who she's telling the story to like a fellow deplorable quote unquote, he's also confused. He's like, well, are we the rabbit or are we the tortoise? And then the scene just, the scene just ends. So like, we don't know what yet. It may have been a reference to earlier on when she was uh, sitting and waiting outside of the gas station and then saw the guy approach, you know, and instead of killing mm-hmm. the drone or instead of searching for them, she was sitting there waiting like the tortoise, you know, moved slow instead of races or uh, yeah, I don't know. That's, 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 that's the only thing I could come up with. Yep. Yeah. I really wanted there to be more deep social commentary. So I kind of just invented it for myself to like enjoy the film better. But yeah, I don't think that it was the writer's like intent for it to be there. I was looking for a little bit more depth, like both Gabe and Nick myself. And and it's fresh off the other film that we reviewed in the prior episode, the platform where there actually, we do, I firmly do believe there was more depth there than, Mm -hmm. than we were able to even elicit in in our analysis. 33 levels. Yeah. Like I, I do think, (laughs) yeah, that's funny. Funny. (laughs) Anyway. Um, but yeah, I, I was looking for more here and I mean, this, gives me a brief opportunity to even have my own commentary on this. I do think there is a big difference in terms of like depth and narrative between uh, modern American films and at this point foreign films. I'm going to sound like one of those snobs with like a mustache and a beret at this point in time, but like I don't think I'm out of line at this point and I know there are numerous other social commentators that are willing to agree that yeah, we, we're lacking a lot of depth out of Hollywood or wherever this Yeah, the came fact from. that the platform was written and directed and made in Spain, like yeah. that's it's a whole other it's another world the art of storytelling um as slick rick would call it is is no longer i would say a, a hollywood hallmark they're pretty bad at it um but anyway what, gabe what do you think what do you think um regarding this lack of depth do you think that that is just something that the writers and directors um of this genre they, they just kind of know their audience and we're only looking for like the very like I don't know, skin deep type of like social commentary. Is that, is that who we are here in the United States? Is that part of the problem? What do you think? I mean, considering that 90% of the films produced in Hollywood today are either remakes or like some sort of, uh, you know, comic book bullshit. Uh, you know, it's, it's probably, it's probably the case. Um, I don't know. The, the first, the first kind of warning about all this was the gas station scene after the, the, you know, main protagonist kills the two gas station attendants mm-hmm. and she like lights up a cigarette and she's just standing there. And then all of a sudden, like it goes into slow motion, but she's not, there's no movement. She's just standing there, but it's slow motion for some reason. <laughs> yeah. And then you have like this, like the kinks or some sort of like 20th century, like Euro band start playing like some shitty music. And it reminded me of a Wes Anderson film, but this guy's trying to be like, I don't, he's like trying too hard or something. And, and that yeah. was just like, because I just watched The Lack Aquatic like a few nights ago, and there's like the famous mm-hmm. scene of Bill Murray walking down the steps at the end in slow motion, and Wes Anderson's known for for doing those slow motion, uh, you know, tapes. But and then and then like uh, there were just so many corny one-liners, like when the when the protagonist says "Hi, bitch" at the end, you know, and then kills like all the rich liberal yeah. people in the bunker, and then there's just constant cussing and gore, and I just I hate like the American obsession with gore, uh, especially like in, in Hollywood. Um, I just I, I used to be into it when I was a kid, but like Michael Bay, you know, ages really fast. So um, <laughs> overall, I just I, I thought you guys loved it or something. I thought I was going to be the odd one out here, but I'm glad you guys are uh, yeah. kind of, you know, in I mean, it's like if I'm getting it a rating, right, it's like six out of 10 stars or something like, yeah, it's worth yeah. watching. You're not going to it's not going to blow your mind or something, but. I do want to though, like kind of let the writers off the hook a little bit because the interview I listened to with one of the writers said I can't remember their names, but they were both writers on The Leftovers, the television show together. And while they were writing that, they said, we should, let's write a film that's kind of a take on like Battle Royale or Surviving the Game. 
and like let's make it a Bloomhouse film, which is a production house that produces like The Purge and like these types of films. So that was basically their whole goal. And then they were like, why don't we make it have like, let's critique the liberal left that we like experience all the time. And let's throw the right in there. And like, let's just critique like the political discourse in America. Like that literally was their entire goal for the film. So there was nothing deeper there or anything. They just wanted to make a like kind of funny, kind of political, like gory sort of horror thriller film. It could have been better. Yes. Like that's the point is there was a lot when we, we you know, as it, as it started getting going, going, I was exciting and I kept like looking for more depth and more depth and it just never came. Well, the thing that I think. And then we end up in like the kitchen scene where they're the, the final battle, the quote unquote final battle. And then I just kind of left disappointed. I'm like, the reason that I had such high hopes for it is because I had read all of the people both on the left and on the right like losing their minds so I'm like shit there must be so much here and then I watched it and was just let down so maybe if I hadn't read all of that commentary in the beginning I wouldn't have been so let down because I was expecting so much but yeah it just wasn't there I just think Um, it's interesting that there's even a movie out there in American like mainstream American theaters or I guess online now since you know COVID but um, that, that, that actually is trying to even you know, touch on these issues or, or make a, you know, social commentary on like the political polarization that we currently have. I mean, Boots Riley's, you know, Sorry to Bother You kind of did the same thing. And I don't know about you guys, but I can't remember the last time like an explicitly anti-capitalist film was mainstreamed or one that goes, one that's so explicitly like political as as this one, you know? So I, I just think that it's weird how these movies are, are happening in America in such an yeah. apolitical country as everything's becoming charged. And, uh, yeah, if it weren't for like the, you know, overuse of buzzwords, uh, which are just kind of, I don't know, they're, they're just such obvious allusions to like the, uh, the, the social problems in this country or the, the social dissonance in this country. Like it could have been a better movie, but the execution was lacking. Like you both well, said, so that- but I, I, yeah. The funny thing is, like, we're all three clearly biased. I think if it had come from the radical left or the radical right, it would have been a better movie. I would have hated it if it came from the radical right, but at least it would have dug deep into, like, the social critique. It probably you know? would have been a better film. See, what I, what I instantly, when I watch these films, I instantly kind of, you know, think back to films that kind of did something similar, uh, but did it better. And for me, even though the whole, the complete premise of the movie is different, it's, it's still a commentary on modern liberalism, far right politics, um, celebratism. And that's God bless America. And that came out a few years ago. I don't remember when. I think Netflix just pulled it off, uh, pulled it off its platform. But God bless America was actually, I think it, it did everything that this film sought to do in terms of political and economic and social and cultural commentary but did it exponentially better and with so much more depth well i, think I don't the know fact if either of starting I don't know if, from the premise of like let's start with like a battle royale thing and then like jam political analysis into there i think that's why they fell short yeah i thought the uh, I, like i said i kind of want to do and i've wanted to do an episode on god bless america for a while now because it is hilarious um but Anyway, I, that's what I was, I went back to that film or even another film like Idiocracy, like, and now we have to go back like two decades for that. Yeah, now we're aging ourselves. Yeah, regardless, shit, even Office Space to an extent, like some of these films, I thought, honestly, if they set out with a goal to like say something rather than starting with this idea of let's satirize Hunger Games or, or Battle Royale for a minute and then like just see where it takes us. I think that's probably part of the problem here. Actually, you know, it would have been better. I just thought of is if the plot, instead of the liberal elites, like managing this whole thing, if it was legit Battle Royale, where all let's say 12 of the participants were of different political viewpoints, and they had to fight each other, that would have been way more entertaining. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I would have liked that more too. So anyway, I I mean it it definitely feels like we all have you know we left we were left wanting mm-hmm. after watching this film we were definitely left wanting what I mean do you have other analysis that you want to chime in on there Nick? Um, I had a bunch of other references to like Animal Farm, like as an example, the farm in Animal Farm is called Manor Farm, so right. like clearly Manor Gate is like alluding to that. Um, so I think they tried. Uh, yeah, I think I was just left wanting as the same as you guys. Like I said, I really wanted it to be a critique from the radical left. I even would have accepted it from the radical right. But the fact that it's kind of a critique from the center just leaves it sort of like blah. But here's the thing. Okay. So that's what I was thinking about. Let's, let's have that conversation before we kind of like wind down here. Like, okay. So it doesn't seem to matter if we're talking about this film, The Hunt, or even a couple of the films that we all just referenced, whether it is Sorry to Bother You or whatever, Idiocracy or 
or I, I don't, I don't know, uh, God Bless America, or any of those other films that are clear critiques. Why do you think these critiques? Um, and this is true of basically all satire throughout history. I mean, taking it back to, you know, the ancient Egyptians and Greeks, the people that invented satire. Um, like, why do you think that this vehicle is both the safe way to, like, hopefully criticize society and create some sort of self-awareness or to, like, look at ourselves in the mirror, as Michael Jackson would have us do, um, and yet still allow us to do like we we do that we absorb it we digest it we realize wow these people are either like mocking me or mocking people that are against me or whatever and i can i can kind of digest that but then like the behavior itself nothing changes like so it doesn't matter if they're like full-blown kind of like soft um satirists like the filmmaker filmmakers here or if they're willing to go like hard as hell like i don't know i can't even think of a good satirist right now whatever like a, a euripides or a jonathan swift now i'm going like way back in time but whatever like hardcore satirist and yet nothing changes i guess what how are we as the audience doesn't matter if we're right left centrist whatever able to like digest this reflect on it and then go back to fucking work tomorrow with nothing changing i think we let her we're able to let ourselves off the hook because it's a comedy and i can't think of yeah i legit can't think of any film or story that has been a like really deep critique that doesn't have some aspect of comedy. I mean, thinking of like, what's going with Kirk Douglas where he like loses his shit? Escape from L. Oh, oh Michael Douglas. And that's called yes, falling down. Michael Douglas great falling film. down. Thank you. Falling yes. down is a great, even film. that has like funny parts in it. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's part of it. It's effective because like you're able to make the critique in the spirit of comedy, right? Without too much risk. But at the same time, then it doesn't ring true or have the same impact as it might otherwise for people, I think. I don't know. Gabe, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think comedy is the best way to convey, like, you know, social problems or uh, social commentary. Um, I don't know. I'm more a fan of, like, the serious dramas and the cyberpunk right. genres and stuff like that. So, uh but those those genres don't do shit either. That's the question I'm asking. We're able to basically what I'm saying is we all feel clearly, and it doesn't matter if I'm talking about those ancient Greeks or middle aged Brits or whoever I was just referencing. Doesn't matter. We all feel something is fundamentally wrong with our general trajectory as humans. We then decide to commentate on it through the vehicles available to us because of our society, and yet that because we're using essentially the tools of the game of which we're commenting comment against, we never actually come to the full realization of, again, revolutionary thought, revolutionary process. I guess what I'm saying here is it's it's just a, basically a giant, I don't know, like ego stroking session at this point. Like, I, well, it, I think it's, that it's almost frustrating in a way that we're like, oh, I can watch this 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 film or this South Park episode or this Saturday Night Live skit or whatever and get a quick chuckle. Oh, they're making fun of me, but I don't have to change my fucking behavior. So I have two points on that. First is like, it's literally impossible to do it any other way because like the means or the language, the discourse, et cetera, like it doesn't exist. We have no way to critique the status quo other than using the discourse of the status quo. We can't like step outside of capitalism for a second and critique it. Like that literally is impossible. My second point is many people argue, and I think Gabe will probably have a comment on this based on his recent Facebook posts about art, but many people like Adorno, et cetera, have argued that art is the only place where like the forefront of critique takes place. It's the only place where it can, because it's the only one where its language sort of exists outside of or incorporates all of like the discourses of any status quo. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I mean, I, I agree with uh, what Jared was saying earlier about how like the infrastructure of language isn't really there to to clearly define like what is wrong or like what trajectory we should be going in to, to face these problems. Um, and I think that's a failure of the left. I mean, during its humiliating retreat over the last 40 years, you know, we've kind of, uh, you know, failed to, to imbue class consciousness into like large swaths of the population and, and fight against like the consolidation of, of you know, bourgeois propaganda. So uh, I, I think that maybe that's why this movie turned out the way it does and why comedy seems to be such a pertinent avenue for trying to convey 
these confused notions of, of political, you know, consciousness. Yeah, I think that, like, we can't fault them for trying, right, is kind of what I want to say. They tried to make a film, these incredibly successful, like, writers and directors tried to make a film with some type of social commentary using the avenues that they knew how to use. Maybe it's our fault for expecting it to have some grand impact that will change people's lives and, like, Gabe's talking about, right, achieve class consciousness and not, like, it's our fault for expecting that a film can accomplish that. Like, I don't think that's ever going to happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and it gets me to think like, yeah, I, you know, expecting, you know, Trevor Noah or John Oliver or Seth Myers or whoever, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, Samantha B, all of these social commentators who are clearly saying, you know, they, they are like, they're the ones that are being satirized here, like somewhat like this kind of like, their PC liberal agenda. And sometimes they'll say something a little bit profound, but then it's kind of backtracked with essentially like kind of laughed off because it's comedy. And that that's probably part of the problem right there. Like, is that it's safe. Like comedy presents this opportunity for us to make these social critiques. And, but it's also like, it's also that safety that neuters it. Like it's, it's the same thing, like the safety of being able to just, oh, it's just jokes. It's just comedy. I can say what I want. But then the fact that it is comedy also neuters the message a little bit, whether that, that, that neutering is for like the powers that be, or if it's for the audience that you're trying to quote unquote, at least see another angle or another facet or convert to your way of thinking there, they don't feel like they have to because it's all in the name of comedy. And then we, no one has to do, no one has to act. Well, and, and Hollywood is, I mean, just like the universities, you know, a vehicle for, for ideological reproduction, um, and yeah. especially the, the hegemonic ideology of society capitalism. So it's like if you step too far outside of those bounds, you know, and, and you don't guise it under some sort of comedy or, or you know, non-serious uh, manner of conveyance, then you're going to be like torn apart or the, the thing will become deplatformed or defunded. Um, it's like in, uh, what is it, Stranger Than Fiction with Will Ferrell, you know, he goes into the coffee shop or the bread shop and, and they're talking about anarchism, you know, and the lady's like, oh, I don't want to fucking pay uh, some of these taxes because I think we spend too much on defense or, you know, I, I don't think we should be, uh, you know, I think our infrastructure is shit or whatever. And, and the IRS guy, you know, Will Ferrell's character, he's like, well, ma'am, you have to pay all your taxes. What are you, an anarchist? And then <laughs> they go on this like long thing where like, you know, oh, is there a group like is there like a, a place where they all meet? Wouldn't that defeat the purpose? But it's all, you know, you know and it's, it's talking about like far left, like, you know, politics yeah. in, a, in a mainstream flick. But it's all under the, the auspices of, of comedic relief. And I think that does a disservice to the viewers, honestly. Um, but there's no real way to escape it. I mean, you know, Boots Riley did a really fucking good job. But I mean, a lot yeah. of that was funded outside of the institution itself of Hollywood. Right. And I think that you run the risk if you want to make a film or a book or whatever, even should have a podcast like that actually has a really deep, extreme critique. You run the risk of no one listening to it. Right. If you made a film that was super hardcore in your face critique, like no one would watch it. Like, I mean, that's I, I, t- I talked about that a bit in this essay I wrote for uh, for Sam uh, Shanson, actually, um, about uh, how, you know, the Vietnamese are erased from the Vietnam War um, through these mainstream you know films like uh yeah. metal jacket and, and what have you and uh and uh fuck where was i going with that um yeah if you if you step outside the bounds of like acceptable debate and chomsky talks about this too then then you're going to be uh you know ostracized uh and uh and then people aren't going to invest like either their you know their their mind or their their pocketbook into the production that you're creating so it's like if you go too far left or too far right then it becomes socially unacceptable even if the commentary is really good uh yeah. and incisive and uh and then you're just not going to receive funding at all from anyone like no one's going to get on board so it's it's just like weird just cultural constraint that we're faced with and then you have to reel yourself back in it's not unlike uh one of the greatest ancient stories of all time that really kind of i always reference on our podcast it's it's plato's allegory at this point the prisoner that escapes goes and sees reality has to come back and then he's faced with the choice no one believes him about this reality to these prisoners in the cave and he has to choose well i know the truth but like i also want to be part of like 
people and society and be, be with these other, I, I'm, I don't want to be alone. So maybe I have to, again, in this case, he doesn't have to dumb himself down. I think that the prisoner has to like, you know, kind of forget and adjust his eyes to being back in the cave again. But essentially that adjusting of the eyes is like, that's playing by the rules of the game so that you're not completely just so far out there, right? Like that's the same concept that you guys are talking about. And actually, like, I do want to bring this back to the hunt because I tried to find the script online and I couldn't find it, but I could only find, uh, like excerpts from it. And to give the screenwriters credit, it actually is much more extreme in the script version. Like their descriptors of the characters, uh, et cetera. It's in ways that we don't get in the film. Like when they're describing Athena, they describe this woman and like they go into this really, really deep description of this character that we don't actually see in the film. So I guess to give them a little bit of credit, they probably wrote it in a way that was more extreme, but we don't see that once it gets transferred from the script to the screen, some of that is lost. So I don't know if they did it themselves or if the director did it to them or if the studio did it, but they, they definitely sort of lost some of that sharp critique that was in the original script. Well, and that speaks to, of course, the, the, the problem with the industry and the stakeholders and the, yep. I mean, it's all right there. Gabe was kind of talking about it. You just end up back with this like half baked, uh, uh, idea of what the film was supposed to be critiquing. Even if it wasn't going to come from the far left or the far right, it probably could have been much more biting than it actually was. But I go back to my point that like, we probably, we are the ones that are at fault for expecting, like in this case, the Hollywood machine to provide a real critique of the status quo. Like that's never going to happen. Yeah. The best that they'll, you know, critique is Hollywood itself, which is, I mean, yes. Quentin Tarantino just did that recently. So, right. But exactly. um, I, I guess, I guess one other scene I, I wanted to touch on real quick uh, is, and, and this is kind of a good example of how people like us can, can reach a little far and, and trying to, you know, ascertain meaning when there is none there or depth when there is none there. But um, when uh, the, sh- the shopkeeper lady is like, uh, or, or the guy is standing over the dying, uh, you know, hunted person. Yeah. Like I'm a godless, I'm a god, I'm a godless elite. Climate change is real, and then kills the working class guy. Um, I at first, you know, before I watched the rest of the movie, I was like, oh, maybe they're, you know, uh, maybe this is commentary on like the petite bourgeois, like small business owner who will, you know, uh, kind of uh, virtue signal in, in in an attempt to like gain customers or something like that, like McDonald's yeah. turning their their sign upside down to support right. women or, you know, it's racial sensitive uh, sensitivity training and, and Starbucks, even though they use like slave labor, you know, to get their beans and or child yeah. labor to get their beans. Um, but uh, I don't know. I was, I was hoping there would be something like that there, you know, but again, like never mind, like the, the commentary on, on class that's, that's very base in this movie. But uh, I, I was really hoping they would kind of get into like the different levels of class and how they interact. And, Again, I was just reaching apparently because the rest of the movie turned out to not really be about class so much as no. the left and the right, which would be, you know, it, it would have been more fortunate, I think, uh, if, if they would have honed in more on class and less on like, you know, the the political uh, aspects of, of what we consider left and right in America. Yeah, that's a good point that they don't even really focus on the fact that one half of them are rich and the other half are poor. It's more about what they believe. Had they even just done that, it would have been a more, I think, apt critique that would have provided a lot more commentary that would have been useful. Yeah. It's only in the very beginning, right, when we see them on the plane and there's the dialogue between the guy, his name is Richard, and the flight attendant who he he's asking for a – she asks him if he wants a snack and he says – she says, we have really good caviar. And he says, have you ever had caviar? And she says, no. And you think for like a brief second he's going to like – like, okay, let's have some. But instead he says like, oh, it's delicious. It really is. But I had some last night. Do you have anything else basically? And like, that's really the only time when class kind of shows itself is the plane and the stewardess and like this relationship. The rest of the time, it's not about them being rich and the others being poor. It's about their ideological beliefs. And that's the divide. Maybe the guy's name being Richard was supposed to be an allusion to that. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Well, and then at the end, like as the movie draws down and we kind of wind down this analysis, I guess maybe trying to drive that home is when Crystal ends up victorious. She puts on like the fancy clothes of, of Athena and ends up getting back on this private plane, basically demanding of the crew, hey, like I've killed everyone you work for, take me home. Uh, and then she gets on this plane and the stewardess, the same stewardess from the opening scene 
ends up serving her a fancy bottle of I don't know, whatever, and some caviar. And Crystal asks her, because Crystal comes from this lower class, she's proletariat, hey, have you ever had caviar? And in this case, Crystal gives the stewardess a taste of caviar, of which she's never had. And so maybe there is some sort of commentary there or lesson that we're supposed to get out of this. Um, where she's, she's kind of dressed up as like the bourgeoisie now, but still acting like she's proletariat by willingly, you know, giving to, giving to the others. But again, I, I don't know, you know, that might be reading too much. I mean, the filmmakers were definitely aiming for a message there, like, oh, the rich guy wouldn't give her any caviar, and now the poor girl is going to give her caviar. Like, that's clearly the message there. I don't know how much deeper it goes, but that's the point of the movie, and that's kind of how we're like drawing this down, is that there's, like there's more there there's a lot of lost opportunity here. Yeah, there for could death. have been more. There could have been so much more, and that's like really like the moral of this podcast right now, based on this film, The Hunt, is that like, yeah, cool, at least a film was produced in the United States that's willing to take a, a super soft core look at itself and like political ideology and maybe dabble a little bit in class and reference um a very famous uh, uh book by George Orwell as some of its inspiration while also critiquing um like hunting uh, hunger games and battle royales. It's it's basically trying to do all of these things and it's cute that they made it, but that's where I'm left. This was a cute film that really lacked depth. That's 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 where I'm at. Yep, agreed. Gabe, you were going to say something? Compared to like Oliver Stone's uh, Platoon or something, the 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 commentary is just so much more implicit, and it's mm-hmm. yeah. Overall, I mean, there's there's not much there. Um, I think I think the plot suffered because of uh, because of a lot of these weird, you know, tangential. Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, commentaries on on social progressivism, um, which I get that I get that that was like kind of integral to like the purpose of it, but um, they're just just overall like if we're taking it like you know aside from what it's trying to do, like just as a movie, I just I don't think it's a great movie. Like not good writing, not not good acting. I mean, they had a guy on there who was on Mad TV for like eight years, so yeah. you know. <laughs> I do want to take this opportunity to correct Jared, though, because in the credits, she is credited as flight attendant, not stewardess, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> all right. I think we'll cut it off there. Uh, we all three kind of agree that not a great film, probably worth watching, but don't expect too much. There could have been a lot more depth there and definitely a lot more social commentary. But uh, we let the writers off a hook a little bit for at least making an attempt. Um, find us online, revolutionandideology.com. If you're not listening to this on YouTube, find our YouTube channel and subscribe. We post all of our content there as well as other videos that we make for our classes and just for fun. Um, if you really, really like what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon and that helps us spend a little more time creating content and doing what we do. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. And I'm the guest, Gabe. Thanks for having me on, guys. All right, later.